Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. I want to tell you a little bit about what I'm going to be reading here in a moment, beginning with verse 23. You'll remember, and we will actually refer back to uh, talking about the prior passage, Uh, Paul is in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the third most important political city of the Roman Empire. It had uh, maybe 250,000 people there. One reason it was important was that the temple of uh, Artemis was there, as you'll see referred to, and that's the Greek name for the Roman uh, god Diana. Don't worry if you get Diana and Artemis mixed up. We we don't have to keep those gods separate uh, or any kind of understanding, but... Um, you might sometimes hear of uh, that particular God in Ephesus. Now, Christianity was spreading, and uh, I referred to this a little bit uh, last week. It got to the point where it was affecting the society there, and it was uh, affecting them. It was hitting them really where it hurt, and that was economically. There's a man named Demetrius who was a silversmith, Uh, probably uh, the leader of the guild of the shrines, and um, what that meant was he was like a a business owner type person as opposed to just the one that was uh, actually doing the, the silver work. And uh, he was concerned about how Christianity was spreading because it had cut into their profits. And that's what we're going to see here in just a moment. Um, That hurt. It caused them to to perk up and and notice. And basically, we see a, a big reaction when they realized what was going on with the spread of this Christianity was going to affect them personally and particularly in the way that they make their living. Now let's pick up with verse 23. And this is in Acts 19. It says this, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That would be Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, uh, bought no little business, uh, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing 
She, she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Remember that phrase. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and uh, Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's uh, companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who are friends of his, uh, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. You see what's going on? Some of them are, are shouting this theme, some are shouting a different theme, and some are saying, why are we shouting? You know, <laughs> but they were shouting too. So that's kind of the picture of what was, what's going on. Verse 33, some of the crowd pomp, prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had uh, put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these, uh, these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, will you help us to discern why you saw fit to preserve this passage for us here today? I have no doubt that some who read this or heard it read said, I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't see how this applies to me or to us as a church. And so we would ask that your spirit would teach us would open us up to hear from you, and we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, an article I read this week, there were some statistics that I, I'm, I'm sure some who are pastors or concerned about churches would have been uh, quite concerned about. Um, it said that less than 20% of Americans regularly attend church. Now, that's, that's way down from what we usually hear. We usually hear 
This article was disputing that. Uh, most pollsters will say 40%, but uh, this article said, no, people tend to over-exaggerate how much they go to church. And, you know, I'm kind of surmising it's like if, if there's a, you know, a survey or somebody's asking you and they say, uh, you know, are, do you go to church regularly? That at least 40% are going to say yes, but of that 40%, there, there probably are some that say, well, let me think. Yes, I go regularly. I go every single Easter and Christmas Eve. So yes, I'm, I'm regular. It's like clockwork. You know, I'm always there. And so I, this person said, no, it's more like 20%, which would be way down. Nobody would dispute, uh, as this article stated again, and we are seeing it uh, across the country that uh, in America, church attendance is steadily declining. And they said mid-sized churches are shrinking, and the smallest and largest still are growing. Now, by mid-sized, because uh, when I read that, I thought, well, you know, I, we're probably mid-sized. Well, no, the way uh, they define mid-size is 100 to 299. So that puts us in the large church category, which statistically is probably true. I don't think of us that way, but it's probably true because the average church in the U.S. is maybe 120 members and, you know, half of, half of that or two-thirds of that in attendance. Then it said this in the article, I am, I'm profoundly convinced that the greatest spiritual danger for our times is the separation of Jesus from the church. Taking Jesus out of the church, the church becoming something other than focused on Jesus. And at the same time, I am reading the book, The Post-Church Christians. And it's about those who uh, still that claim to be Christians, but they're leaving the church behind. They're saying, I, I'm disillusioned, or I had a bad experience, or I don't like what I see in the church. Now, when I read this article, and by the way, I know that all sounds discouraging. <laughs> I think it, it should sound discouraging uh, to many, but to me, that's, it's not discouraging. To me, it, it just highlights the great opportunity that we have uh, to reach out in our community and in our, our country. The, the opportunity is there because for many churches, and I'm thankful to say that that isn't our experience, but for many churches, they would say, yeah, that's us. That's what's happening. We're, we're dwindling up. And if anything, it just gives us opportunity to clearly put the gospel out. But as I read, as I'm reading this book and I read this article, it made me ask myself the question, okay, so if Jesus or Paul or Peter were to come to the United States and look around at churches, would they recognize that these are people that are claiming to have the same mission as the early church had? Would they even recognize it? 
we're going to look today at uh, uh, this, this passage that shows how the spirit of the world seeks to get its point across and seeks to dispute Christianity and the teachings of Paul, which are the teachings of Jesus. So let's take a, a look at this, first of all, in terms of the, the what I've called the persuasion of the spirit of the world. I want you to look at the attempts that they were making here uh, to prove or promote false religion. And the reason uh, I want us to look at this is that I think uh, it's rather typical of uh, those that would want to dispute Christianity. They, they like to go these routes. The first one, uh, in your, if you have your outline, I've called Numbers Rule, uh, verse 27. Now, this is the spirit of the world, not the spirit of Christ. Verse, verse 27 says, There's a danger not only that uh, this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. Now, this phrase, she whom all Asia and the world worship. You see what he's saying to try to convince them? He's saying, look, everybody out there knows who Artemis is. Everyone in the world sees it the same way. Uh, verse 35, it says, and this is the town clerk, when he had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and so on? He's, he's basically doing the same thing, trying to say, look, <clears throat> there's this great cloud of witnesses for Artemis. And therefore, we're on the right side because because that's, that's how the whole world sees it. Now, when I, when I read that, and, and it, it struck me that way, uh, the idea of uh, appealing to numbers, you know, it doesn't prove something to be true. I recalled a conversation that I had uh, when I was in high school. Yes, I can still remember actual conversations from then. And I remember exactly who I was talking to. It was my friend Eddie Roth, who uh, was Jewish. Uh, uh, about half the school I was in high school uh, with, about half of them were Jewish. And I was at that point trying to talk to Eddie uh, about the Lord. I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I wanted to talk to him about the Lord. And so we were having this back and forth. But the problem was that um, Eddie was way smarter than I am. And at one point, I thought I had this, this great and wonderful point. I said, well, Eddie, what about the millions of people down through the centuries who have been Christians? Doesn't that tell you something? And I thought, I had him. He had to become a Christian after that. And he said... What about the millions of communists in China? Does that mean that communism is right? He was right. That wasn't the argument. I, I didn't have anything to say. It was like, okay, I guess I'll become Jewish. I don't know. I, you know, because I had no answer to that one. 
But see, numbers, that doesn't prove something to be true. All it does is say there's a bunch of people out there who happen to think the same thing, but the spirit of the world tends to think that that's a, a big argument. And that reasoning is used all the time in the world, statistics. You know what? I started my sermon with statistics, didn't I? But I will simply warn you. Actually, I was questioning some statistics. But I'll just warn you, just because someone uses statistics, that doesn't prove anything. Or polls, especially in politics. By the way, both parties use this. That's a, this is a nonpartisan concern. You know, but they... they do polls for everything as if that really meant something. I saw one this week that said um, you were to text or uh, call in to say, if you think the government will shut down this week. And I thought, so what? What if everybody thinks that? That doesn't make it so. Or what if everybody thinks it won't shut down? And yet, they treat those as if those should be a great influencer. And then there's another form of this, and that's, that's merely peer pressure. Everyone's doing it. It must be okay. All of those can be used by the spirit of the world to seek to prove truth. There's, a, there's another way uh, in this passage that we see the promotion of false religion and that is personal advantage is the motivator. Verse 25, this is Demetrius. Then he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Now I want you to notice, that's where he started. And then later on, he, he shows a, another concern. He says they're teaching that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's a danger not only this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. Do you see what was most important to him? It was the prophet. Now he just threw in that, oh yeah, and Artemis might lose her, her place. But he started out by appealing to their pocketbooks. He said, look, we need to be against this because, because it's going to hurt us financially. So let's be against, oh, by the way, it's, you know, it, it, it puts our God down too. But we need to be against this. How often do we make decisions based on our own financial gain or loss or other personal advantage rather than what is right. We are appealed to, this is, sounds political, but again, both parties use this, we are appealed to vote for so-and-so because of this. Are you better off now than you were two years ago or four years ago? What's it appealing to? Not what's right, but my own personal advantage. And we're expected to make decisions based upon that. But it's a, it's a dangerous thing to take stands 
based on personal advantage rather than what is right. You can be led into untruth if your own personal advantage is the most important thing. And then thirdly, what we see here in the spirit of the world is that emotion carries the day. And I, I emphasized that before. You had uh, them crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then uh, it says uh, the, the theater that they were in would seat about 25,000 people. Imagine, that's a pretty fearsome sight. Not nearly as big as our football stadiums uh, that uh, we go to. But still, you get that many people together. Uh, but look at verse 32. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't know why they'd come together. You see, self-centeredness, man-centeredness, selfishness leads to confusion. One minute they're whipped into a frenzy, the next minute they're talked out of it by the clerk of the town. He just talks to them, and they say, oh, okay. You know, for two hours they had just... Uh, shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then, it, then they're dismissed. So emotion was uh, used, they thought, to the advantage of promoting their false religion. Now I want you to contrast those three things. Uh, the numbers, personal advantage, and emotion. I want, I want to contrast that very briefly with a previous passage, how God had worked. What is the, the spirit of the persuasion of the Holy Spirit? How, how does he do it? Is, it? is it by numbers or personal advantage or, or emotion? Now, we've been through this previous passage, but I, I just want to use it to contrast here. Uh, eight, in verse 8, speaking the truth and letting it stand on its own. Uh, Paul, it says, verse 8, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn, continued in unbeliefs, uh, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, and so on. This continued for two years. Paul argued persuasively. Why was he so passionate? Why was he willing not just to whip them into a frenzy, not to manipulate them, but to sit there and day after day for two years to reason with them? He was so passionate because he knew this was life or death. It was eternal life or death. But he also understood the truth that he could lay it out there and let it stand that it was its defense. It was essential to him. Second way of per persuasion that, that we see is are the changed lives. Now, we talked about this last week in terms of the, the repentance. And if you remember, and I'll just point out the verses 18 through 20, which we went through um, last week in more depth. 
But what happened is that there were those who were believers, but they had <clears throat> one foot, as it were, in the church and one foot still in their occultic practices. And so they uh, came and they brought their books and they uh, burned them and other things. And it was uh, what they burned was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. And we talked about how that was worth basically 50,000 days of wages. What had happened? <clears throat> well, they, their lives were changed. They repented. They turned from it. And rather than seeking out personal advantage, they said, it, it doesn't matter. You know, this, this money doesn't matter if we've lost our integrity and our faith. And so they burned it up. They got rid of it. You see the, the difference there? That's a real changed life. It went from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness. Genuine repentance. Boldness. Paul wanted to walk into that theater where <clears throat> these 25,000 people are, are shouting. And they, they had to hold him back from doing that. And the real faith began to have an effect on society because of the changed lives. So that was a proof of the faith. And then thirdly, living a consistent life with our faith. That's a proof in the way God advances the church. Now this was the town clerk, verse 37. For you've brought these men uh, here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. So basically, what he's saying is, look, they, they haven't really done anything that, that we should be rioting against. We don't have any proof. You got proof, go to, go to the court or the hearing. And he says, uh, he says we, we just don't have it. Now, in your outline, I've said, living uh, consistent with our faith, so we cannot be accused. Well, I just have to say this. <clears throat> you can still be accused. doesn't matter you know, what you have or haven't done. You can still be accused. But what we want is, if we are accused of something, for there to be no basis for it. And that is another proof that advances the gospel. Now, I want to give you two applications here, and they're, from, from, uh, they're the same application, basically, but from opposite angles uh, in terms of what about us. I'm sorry, my, <clears throat> I think the, the blue dust from uh, Color Me Rad has tr finally worked its way up to uh, my throat, so if I cough and a little blue cloud comes out, you'll, you'll know <clears throat> that's what it is. Um, Stay with me for these applications. Um, first of all, av avoid the temptations of using the spirit of the world to grow the church. That's where we've, we've, we've got to be. Let me describe um, uh, this world-flavored brand of Christianity. Let's use just our categories we just talked about. First one, numbers rule. If a hundred's good, a thousand's better. Whatever it takes to get a thousand, that's what we do. 
<clears throat> and there are churches, I'm sad to say, there are churches where their argument will be, well, it's working, it's bringing people in, so we will do it. We mustn't ever go there. We can't. That's the spirit of the world. Secondly, personal advantage. And that is the, the health and wealth gospel. You know, the only, ones, the only ones getting wealthy off the health and wealth gospel are the pastors who preach it. But it's dangerous, it's deadly, because it takes the focus off of the true gospel. And you know, you know that wasn't Jesus' message, ever, ever, ever. He never said, do this so you'll be healthy or wealthy. In fact, he said, you know what? If you follow me in this world, you will have troubles. Take courage, I've overcome the world. I will be with you always. But he promised us there would be persecution, there would be troubles, but he also promised us that there is that day and that kingdom to look forward to. But when people talk about personal advantage here in this life as a, the primary motivator, it's dangerous. It is not the gospel. Thirdly, emotion. And that would be <clears throat> focusing on the subjective rather than the objective. Rather than saying, this is the Word of God. This is the truth. This is what we stand on. And that takes us over to what our response, what, what we must do. We mustn't fall for those other things, even if they were to work. Even if they were to bring people in the church, if you bring them in that way, it's false pretenses. And so, what do we stand upon? Trusting the tools and weapons of God. How did the early church grow? The Spirit of God. The Word of God. Prayer, the sacraments, and biblical fellowship. And that's what we've got to stand upon. Those are the, the tools of God. Those are the methods of God, the ways of God. God has blessed St. Andrew's with growth. For that we give him all praise. If he wants us to grow, may it only and always be his way. Let's pray together. Lord, if ever we would be tempted to become pragmatist, to just do things because they work. Will you protect us? Will you guard us? Will you pull us back? Will you put a fence around us in those areas? Will you help us to, to go the other way, to, to trust 
your tools and your weapons for this war that you have dropped us into the middle of, and that is your spirit and <clears throat> your word and prayer and the sacraments and fellowship. Those are precious, Lord. Thank you for them. Help us to know that to use them is to trust you. Give us more faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.